This podcast is sponsored by Inside Out Group, the specialists in high-risk and challenging filming and time-lapse, covering health and safety videos for rail, construction, and infrastructure projects nationwide. And we're live. Welcome to this week's Safer Than Your Average Health and Safety podcast. This week on the show, we've got Bill Cassell from Oxalate Limited. Bill's one of the foremost REV experts in the UK and a really, really interesting guy. Great career story to tell us today. Over to you, Bill. <laughs> I'm not sure where to start, but I guess like yourself, uh, I, I originated out in the Glasgow area, um, but then travelled quite far and wide from there. And um, I mean, basically, I, I spent, I mean, if we jump later, later on, we can, we can discuss where, how I got to various points. But we were, you know, we, we better, I suppose, start health and safety began with HSE. And I joined HSE before many of your viewers were born. And I, 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 I'm ashamed to say it was 1977. Um, and then from, from there, I spent many happy years in HSE and then formed a consultancy. The consultancy was a, it was a health, safety, environmental consultancy, which was then bought out by a very big company a uh, number of years later, and uh, two and a half thousand staff, and I realized I really didn't fit in with a very big company. So now these days, uh, I'm a trainer, and, and they always say uh, that you must be either really, really good at the top of your, uh, your, your, your pinnacle of your career and knowledge, or, or you're pretty useless and you can't do anything else. So I'll, I'll let people who come along my courses decide on that. But, I have fun along the way, so I think that's a bit selfish in that way. I enjoy what I'm doing, and I will continue to do so. So, that's that's the basic introduction, the origins. So, if you tell us a bit about your background growing up, then, Bill, where did you grow up? In Glasgow, it's quite a big place. Can well, you... I grew up. I grew up in a place called Kilkegi, uh, and not many people will know that, but it's about. 17 miles out of Glasgow. Um, family were decamped there after the last war, um, as a lot of people were dormitory wee towns and villages. Uh, my, dad was a, my dad was a joiner with the council. And speaking about health and safety, every summer I used to go out with my dad and we went on all the jobs with him, you know. I mean, okay, the worst thing he had there was probably a handsaw, but um, we used to have uh, these little bonfires on the, on the site and you had your little bean can with your tea in it and things. I love those. They're really, really happy memories of going out with my dad. But something that's important, maybe there was two things I learned from my dad. Um, I always thought as a youngster, because uh, you know, you're always, um, you think you know more than your parents. Um, and I remember saying to him one day, he, he was stick building a... A window frame. So they used to go to council houses. In those days, you didn't get window frames pre-made. My dad, on a bike, I might add, took mouldings and cut them with a handsaw and made the window frames. And I was getting a bit bored, and we'd had a cup of tea and a wee billy can, and, and I said to him, don't you ever get bored, Dad? I mean, you're going to make another window frame. It's exactly the same as the one you've just done. It's taking you all morning to make it. I, I remember, it, and it stuck with me for all my life. He said, son, I'm going to make the second window frame a few minutes quicker than the first one, but it has to be made to better quality. And I've run my life that all through my life. And our businesses, when we've run them, uh, were very profitable. 
In fact, one of the main business people used to call me Mr. Two Minutes. I was always looking to cut a couple of minutes off a job and it might be a new instrument or a better layout of a form or something like that. Cut two minutes off a job. But I had 10 guys doing that job. That was 20 minutes a day, five days a week. And then a week or so later, I would do another two minute idea. And I knew they had that kind of um, nickname for me, but it was my dad. But I still had my dad's um, passion for anything we did to cut time off a job had to had to improve the quality of what we're doing. And that was the second challenge. There was many ideas that came through us and we thought that they would save time uh, and they didn't make it to the final cut because they didn't improve the quality of the job. So that was, uh, that was a lesson, if you like, from dad. Um, that and the fact that um, drinking a pint of raw egg and milk every night, as he did for many months, did not stop him going bald because we kept chickens as a thing. And some, Somebody told my dad, ah, he, he was like me, quite high in the temples. Um, if you drink a raw egg, a raw egg and milk every night, and I've got this picture of my dad standing by the kitchen sink trying to drink. He put lots of salt and pepper in to get it down. Um, and my dad died at 87 just a couple of years ago, and he had as many hairs on his head then as he did when he was in his early, early 30s. So... For those of you out there who are a bit follically challenged, maybe a pint of raw egg and milk every night will actually um, improve your prospects of not going bald. Um, so yeah, I, 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 I like to think I got a lot of my eccentricity from my dad as well. Um, he, he, he was quite a character. Uh, but then, you know, so that's where I grew up and um, council house, council estate, loved it, had a happy childhood. Um, went on to, um, school, um, grammar school in Lanark, as it happens. Um, and then on, uh, I did my hires in, in Scotland. Some of the English viewers might not know, but in Scotland, you can do hires and you can do them at 17 rather than go on to 18 for the A-level. So I'd done everything at 17. It must have been quite bright in those days. It certainly has gone off since then. Um, and I got offered a, a year down in ICI as it was then, which is INEOS now. Um, as a trainee chemical engineer. Um, the story was I wanted to be a pilot all through my life. Uh, I wanted to be a pilot. I was going to do whatever it took to be a pilot. And then one day in chemistry class at school, they brought out color charts. And I was flipping colorblind. So that killed that stone dead. And the old um, chemistry teacher, serendipity, isn't it? The old chem chemistry teacher said to me, Oh, well, if you, if you kind of be a pilot, chemical engineer is a good job. And I was, I was distraught. It was, but hey, I couldn't think of anything else. Went to Runcorn. That was brilliant. That's where uh, people say to me, you're not, you're not for Glasgow. You know, you don't speak like you come from Glasgow. And uh, well, I, I spent uh, a year in Liverpool uh, and they couldn't understand me. And uh, I love Liverpool accent to this day. I couldn't understand them. And I, I had to talk proper to get any any chance of kind of communication. ICI was fantastic. I loved it. Heavy chemicals. Um, and I mean, health and safety was pretty non-existent and that would be 1968 for goodness sake. Um, and uh, opened my eyes to industry. I'd led a very sheltered life as far as industry was concerned up to that point. Um, and then um, 
from there, I decided I really like chemical engineering. So I went on and did a, a degree in chemical engineering. Uh, I stupidly came out of chemical engineering and thought, I want to be a manager. I like the idea of being a manager. I could boss people, make sort of touch something deep inside, you know. Anyway, I went to be a manager of a wallpaper factory, a wallpaper factory. I stuck it for 18 months. Uh, I can still smell the paper now. It's, it's ingrained. And um, I really, I, this is where maybe the serious part was coming through. I really felt that making wallpaper gave nothing to society, maybe except a nice colorful wall. And there was something I couldn't cope with that. I, need, I needed to do, I needed to do a job that was worthwhile. I even looked at being a nurse or something. I, I wanted a job that, um, I don't know, would satisfy that missing part and wallpaper certainly didn't cut it. Anyway, by good, good luck. I, I, that as well, Bill, across their career, um, you get to a stage, probably different stages in people's life that they feel like that and they really have that drive inside them to move towards doing something that is useful and productive. Well, it, it certainly was quite a serious point in my life and, and I didn't know how I was going to do it and what I was going to do and I, I went back to university and did a research degree um, and that was on um, um, carbon, carbon filtration. Um, re really applied to fume cupboards. Uh, this, this, this again leads on to later on in, in my career. And my supervisor was a, a complete out and out eccentric. So we fitted really well. Is Dr. Frank Dewhurst. He was uh, a complete, complete nutter. I loved the guy. Uh, he's the guy that wrote the book on spiders and how they reacted to um, mescaline and marijuana and cocaine. Uh, and I was working with Frank. I mean, uh, uh, the story of Frank is he used to work with rats, but to kill a rat, he used to have to smash its head on a Belfast sink because he didn't want to damage the blood before he took the sample. And then people said to him, you can't even be doing that. This is 1970, you know, it's, it's not very nice to kind of kill the rats like that. So he went on spiders and he had to develop. This, these people all had great influence on me because he had to then develop fine hair-like syringes to inject spiders. And the beauty was a spider spins a web. And when, it, when it's on drugs, it still spins a web, but there's a piece missing. And he could photograph it. So he could photograph the behavioral difference of spiders. Uh, utterly amazing. A, a fantastic guy. Um, married to a six foot four East German woman. And that was at the time of the Berlin Wall. And we are convinced that um, she was out to get a secrets of his research to take back to Russia. But uh, he was, uh, um, a Lancashire lad. He, 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 was, he was certainly very eccentric. So I finished my degree and I was looking for a job. But Frank was very friendly with HSE. He'd done a lot of kind of joint work with HSE. I don't know what HSE would do with drugs at that time. Um, but uh, he, he, um, he said, why don't, why don't you consider going working for O? This is how old it was. It was the year before it became HSE. It was HM Factory Inspectorate. Yeah, yeah. So I thought that was something to do with patents. I thought it was a patent office. I had no idea whatsoever what the heck the Factory Inspectorate was. And I went along and I had an interview in Leicester with a lady and for the life of me, I've been trying today to remember her name and I can't remember her name. She was 
quite a large lady, but she was amazing. Um, what I remember from the interview with this lady was she ran a pig farm in Finland and she had a private pilot's license and flew herself over to see the, 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 the family pig farm in Finland. And she was a, a, an HSE, HM inspector, um, principal inspector. And I thought, ah, that's the kind of organization I can join because I, you know, I feel it's, it's quite eccentric if they have people like that. And, and I really liked the lady. Uh, years later, I told people about that. They said, oh, she was horrible. She used to rip people apart. She was incredibly nice and very encouraging. So I kind of stumbled into HSE and found the best job in my life. Um, I, I couldn't wish in the first um, 10 years or more that I was there, it was, it was fantastic. It, it just filled, it filled all the spots that I've been looking to fill um, in, in, my, um, in my soul, if you like. It wasn't so great in those days sometimes the way it, it ran its personnel. And I think that was the death knell in the end. You were in a mobile grade. Um, I mean, the funny story there was I joined HIC as a general inspector um, and HM Inspector of Health and Safety. And I, walked, I went through these two interviews um, where one of them was asking me about fish and flies, I remember. Uh, and I thought I was kind of weird interview. Another one asked me about motorbikes. So I think these days are all gone. I've gone through a golden age of interviews with HSE. Um, and uh, been through all these interviews, and I got, I got um, um, told that I was going to have to report to Nottingham. So I went to Nottingham uh, and turned up on the first day. And I remember a principal inspector, um, uh, Martin, said to me, he said, oh, you've got a degree in ventilation engineering. I said, no, no, I haven't. It's, 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 a, it's kind of um, uh, activated carbon charcoal research and things like that and fume cupboards. Oh, that's, that'll do. And they seconded me to the bloody LEV department. I knew nothing about LEV, local exhaust ventilation. And I suddenly, typical of HSC in those days, I suddenly found myself sitting amongst all these experts um, on ventilation engineering. But I tell you what, Within two years, I became a bloody expert because um, you were thrown in at the deep end and you were constantly going to everything that was wrong and people being, um, you know, ill, taken ill. Um, so you learn very quickly. And I, I actually quite liked it because it brought in chemical engineering. It had health and safety. Um, so it, it kind of stuck with me as a specialism to this day. Sometimes it's that baptism of fire, getting thrown in at the deep end that really helps you develop. It's something I've seen across my career that I've been put in at the sharp end a few times and left to get on with it a little bit, and it's really stood me in good stead. So that's, that's really interesting. It's, it's kind of sink or swim. And the, the trouble is that either, either all my colleagues were really good and very competent people, or they put up a brave face that you didn't see behind the veneer. But whatever, you couldn't let the side down. So you had to kind of learn very quickly. Yeah. Times have changed. I mean, in, in those days, HSE gave a lot of very, what I would call detailed technical advice, which um, seems maybe today they some, it's um, suitable and sufficient and adequate. And a lot of the guidance says things like that. Whereas 
in the early days, it was quite prescriptive. It shall be this and this distance and this value and so on. And there's no ifs and buts about it. Um, but uh, well, we had some we had some interesting times there. Excellent, excellent. And so you started out HSE general inspector, then moved into a specialism with the LEV side of things. Where did you go to after that in your career, and how did you move on from there, Bill? Well, um, people who know me know that I'm um, impulsive. My wife will tell you that I'm quite impulsive, and I'd been I've been in HSE for quite a number of years, and. In those days, I don't know if any HSE people will watch this video, but in those days, we filled in a form every year called an SAR3. And on it, you said, because you were in a mobile grade, um, they, they said, look, fill in, in order of preference, the three area offices. I remember there was 23 area offices of HSE. Fill in, um, in order of preference, the three offices you would like to be moved to when it's time to move. And at the bottom of the form, list here the three offices under no circumstances would you ever want to be posted to at all. And I got a phone call one Thursday night and I'd get told to go to an office that's at the bottom of the list um, on Monday morning. And I remember it was East Grinstead and apologies to those of you who live in East Grinstead, it's probably a lovely place, but I didn't want to go. Uh, and I said, there was no point of filling that form for all these years um, to say that I'd like to, oh, I remember it was Bristol, Newcastle and Edinburgh. Uh, and those of viewers who live in those towns will know why, because they're wonderful places. Um, uh, and I think I put East Grinstead and Basingstoke and oh, Long Lane in London was another one. Um, and I was told to go to East Grinstead. And I remember going home absolutely furious, furious. Um, but I've been doing a lot of work with Birmingham office and the area director there said, look, Bill, I've got a place for you here uh, as a principal. Um, I want you to come over to me. So I phoned them up on the Friday. <gasps> HR absolutely tore into me. We will decide what's best for your career. Blah, blah, blah. You are going to East Grinstead on Monday. Well, on Monday I came in and resigned. Uh, and it was just, people said to me, you've done a lot of good business over the years and you've been quite successful, I think, with some of the things I've done. It must have been really well planned. I said it wasn't. It was just a fit of um, sulking and throwing the toys out the pram. But it's like you said earlier, it's a baptism of fire because um, a month or two later, I sat on my kitchen table and I thought, crikey, I've got two kids and a mortgage and I've just left a really good job. Um, the job was good, yeah. um, but not the way um, maybe it was handled. Uh, times have changed and HSE is quite a different animal from what it was then. So that's what caused me to set up and I became a one man consultant. I didn't want to do LEV anymore. I'd, I'd had enough of that. I want to be general health and safety. And, and we did, and we did, a, you know, we grew and I employed other HSE inspectors. We had eight at one time. In fact, we, we had got a complaint from the local area director that we had more HSE inspectors than he had. Um, <laughs> and uh, it was a good time and good fun, great camaraderie. Uh, and we built up, but the, the local exhaust ventilation side was building up because the need to carry out statutory examinations and tests of LEV plant was really beginning to take root then. And uh, I found myself in a good position. and uh, I tried to push it away and um, I, I found out that it, it wouldn't leave me alone. 
And we grew that business. Uh, we had um, 23 staff when we sold to a large PLC from Leeds. Um, and um, we, uh, from, from, from there, I, I carried on working with them. And it was quite interesting. We were getting into different um, environments uh, with that organization. A lot more international work uh, was coming our way. And that was quite interesting as well. Um, but again, I, I think I'm, I'm not a great large organization person and those out of employment have passed probably some ex-principals from and uh, senior principals from HSE would agree. Um, and, and I can't take to the corporate style. And I'm, I'd, I'd only been bought over um, a couple of weeks and one of the main board directors came and took me to my office and gave me such a thrashing about the fact that not all my staff were showing the corporate wallpaper on their computer screens. And I thought, it's not going to work. It's not going to work. Um, <laughs> and I stuck with it. And, I, and I, I left them after a couple of years on good terms, on good terms. Uh, and at that time, this is where, you know, life is full of crossroads. And you never know what's going to happen. And one of the crossroads was that this company that bought me over had acquired another company with an old kind of manor house not far from where we were and um, but it got a 20-year lease and they couldn't get out the lease and they'd said to me we thought we think this would make a great corporate training center and we can open it out to the public and could you take the guys over there under your wing and try and develop it and, and we kind of did and uh, we started doing training courses um, and then, and then soon after I left and the corporate PLC lost interest in training and then phoned me up and said, would you do these training courses? Because we don't want to be dealing with it and um, we'll pass them over to you. And that's where the final stage of my career started where I now do mostly training. I do some other things as well, um, but I now do uh, a heck of a lot of training. And your training courses are absolutely fantastic. They come highly recommended from the Safer <laughs> Living Average podcast. I yeah. often refer back to people and tell people the story of the training course that I've done with you, Bill, and how yeah. I got to meet you. And people don't believe me to this day. They say, no, nah, you're making that up. But good I think food, I've that good, story. It's a good, good one. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, uh, you know, yeah, I, I, I see you as one of my success stories, Blair. Uh, I'm not sure how well you got on with the training, but at least you don't drink bad whiskey anymore. And I, I see that as quite a, you know, quite a success story, that. Yeah, definitely. So the, do you want to talk us a bit through how you run the format of your training courses, where you run them and why they're so interesting? Yeah, I, I mean, the, the, the training courses um, started uh, par partly because HSC, just as I was leaving, um, uh, and it was a very good, very good friend of mine, Mark Piney, was in this section heading up LEV, where I'd been before. Uh, and he got together uh, a committee to, to do eventually what would become the, the HSG 258, which was controlling airborne contaminants at work. And his, he was one of the first people that really got to grips with the fact that we have a very large number of people dying um, 
sooner than they should do, we're all dying, but they're dying sooner than they should do, from occupational lung disease. Uh, and depending on the source of the figures today, it's between 12 and 13,000 people. It's like, just let that sink in. You know, we've got an enormous interest in the pandemic that we have currently going on at the moment, and the trillions of pounds worldwide. Yet worldwide, um, there are hundreds of thousands of people dying every year from work-related lung disease, work-related. So it's 100% entirely preventable. It's not using some vaccine that hasn't been developed or some technology that hasn't been developed. The preventative um, uh, options are there. Is my son coming in? There's a swallow in the house. Yeah, all right, we'll go and get it. We have a swallow in the house. Why? Um, so um, these are entirely uh, preventable diseases. And um, Mark had decided that the first part of the um, solution was to come up with good fundamental guidance on the controls. Um, because if we have good controls, then obviously people have to use them and be encouraged to use them. And they have to be suitable and effective and properly designed. And um, they have to be checked and examined and tested from time to time. So all, he brought all this together into HSG 25A. And I was invited, I then left HSG, but I was invited back to sit on the committee and, uh, and, and guide it through, uh, which was quite a nightmare, actually. I've, I've since found out that once you get a committee bigger than two people, it becomes quite hard to um, control things. Um, and they did, uh, all credit to Mark, he, he produced that document and has been updated a few times. He then decided that um, the UK did not have, at that time, a, a nationally recognised qualification for people who would deal with the testing of, of, of LEB. Um, other countries did have it, and America, they had the ACGIH courses for a while, but we didn't. And as I understand it, Mark approached the British Occupational Hygiene Society with a kind of um, unofficially, officially from HSC as a kind of um, schedule of what we would like to see in the course, and BOHS took it on board and developed it. So those were some of the early courses that I dealt with. Uh, and having been involved in the training and having been then fairly recently in HSE, I, I, I was in a good position to um, take those courses on. Um, and, then, and then we developed the courses, or BOHS developed the courses, and they had P602. First one was P601. P602 was the second one, which was design. Uh, and then it went on from there. Um, but I found that I really liked the courses. I felt that we were doing something very uh, positive. We, we had the possibility of making a deep change um, on, several, on several counts. We were going to raise awareness and we were going to raise professionalism within the industry. Up until that time, it was an awful lot of cowboys. And some people might say, well, there's still too many in the industry as many industries have, but uh, it's definitely getting better. Yeah. And the standards are improving all the time. Um, so that's, that's where the, the training came. And I think it just, it, it, it lights a fire for me. Uh, and I wanna make sure that everybody 
has a chance and it doesn't matter it's one of the things i'm still looking at is if the person leaves um university university if the person leaves school at the age of 16 and loses the way a little bit and, and we often find that youngsters lose the way a little bit and then in their mid-20s they kind of they kind of get a grip and decide where they want their lives to go yeah. but they've missed out on the formal education you see uh -huh. but i want to take those people and say look we can take you through to a professional um recognized qualification and it isn't necessarily p601 or p602 that's part of the journey um, but ultimately for a young engineer coming into local exhaust ventilation it would be chartered status yeah. and that can be the three chartered um if you like uh, qualifications that i interface with it's obviously chartered engineer but there's chartered safety professional and there's chartered hygienist and I, I want to see a route plan that can take those people all the way through to that level. And we're working on it and we're getting there with some partners. And I think it won't be long before we've got the, the road fully there. Um, one of the, that, that at the moment, isn't it, to try and expand out the competency framework and recognise that safety people aren't just safety people anymore, they have health responsibilities, they have environmental responsibilities, and also they have business responsibilities as well, and they have to have that business knowledge to be able to develop in the industry and be able to be a part of the senior management team and speak the language that the senior management team I think business skills are incredibly important, Blair, because um, effectively, if you're in health and safety in the broadest sense, you're selling a product. Yeah. Yep. So if you can sell your business, you can sell the product, and that, that, is, that is so important. Sure, sure. So I'm going to ask the difficult question now, Bill, and this one's normally the difficult one when we get to this stage in the podcast. What's the biggest challenge you faced in your long and vast career in health and safety? Um, I, I think it's getting people to, to, to my mind, the biggest challenge is getting people to fundamentally understand the reason behind the things that you're asking them to take on board. Um, uh, if you went back, I mean, and it's changing all the time, what the detail of that challenge is, is changing. So in the early days in HSC, it was getting people to wear PPE. Yeah. Um, and interestingly enough, I remember my early days in HSC, you could get them to wear eye protection, but you couldn't get, the, you couldn't get them for love or money. You couldn't get them to wear hearing protection. And it's this immediateness. And, and they, they, they could understand the immediateness of not wearing eye protection. I've, I've lost my eye. Hearing protection, uh, I've not worn it for, I've been in this department for months and, you know, my hearing might be a bit dull when I go home, but it's fine the next day. It's that progressiveness. Now, I find um, in occupational lung disease, I have something similar um, to that, that people will work for years and years in uh, poor conditions. Uh, and you're trying to get them to use equipment properly and they have to understand why. And um, it, it, it really is quite a challenge that to, mm -hmm. uh, uh, We've got the problems in a lot of places, they use a ventilation plant that is movable. So welding hoods, for example, cantilevered welding hoods. 
uh, and people, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll put them a meter and a half away from where they're welding. And I used to, I've developed little stories, like I'll go and say to them, um, you've got a birthday coming up, and they'll say, oh yeah, two months time, how did you know? Oh, I'm just guessing. Um, you have a birthday cake, yeah? Uh, why do you blow the birthday candles out? Why don't you suck them out? You're going to look at me. And I'll say, think about it, you know, whatever lung capacity you've got in litres, you blow it out, it's the same volume of air you suck in. But you, you, know, you know you're not going to make the candles flicker sucking in, but you know they'll go out when you blow them out. Well, that's exactly the same with your ventilation plant. You put your hand up to it and it feels like it's sucking like mad. Um, but the, the, the distance that will be effective is an awful lot less than what you feel with your hand. Your brain tells you that's sucking really, really well. It go a lot further. So these are little um, incidences of the challenges that we face for people to fully understand the concept of the harm that might occur from silica. Silica is a great one. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, it's stone. It's curb stones, it's roof tiles, it's concrete, it's bits and pieces like that. I mean, that surely can't do you any harm. You could swallow the stuff. Oh, well, there's, there's, the, there's the rub. You can swallow it with quite impunity, but um, can't breathe it in. Yeah. Um, and I, I truly believe that, um, well, I hope to live long enough, um, that uh, people will start saying silica is the new asbestos, because as the asbestos is controlled and uh, as winding up the system silica is a big one i've done a lot of work in the past with asbestos operatives you see it with them that they're, they're all heavy smokers even though they know the risks of being a heavy smoker they work with asbestos day in and day out and sometimes you speak to them and they're really blasé about what they're doing oh i just came out of there and i, I didn't bother going through the decontamination chamber and i took my mask off to have a fag you know and you're thinking really we see, uh, I, I mean, we have some cultural problems to overcome in this country. I've been very fortunate that um, over the years I've, I've worked abroad quite a lot. And uh, um, I've I been to Japan a few times. I love the country. And their attitude to, for instance, PPE is quite different from ours, whereas ours tends to be, oh, oh PPE, oh, whereas it's a badge of honour to wear the PPE, whatever it might be. So you've not have PPE problems. Um, and talking about machinery garden, I, I was there on a, a, a I was in a, a, a factory in, uh, in Japan and it was in a skyscraper. Now that is just odd. It was a, a packaging warehouse and they owned the seventh floor. So you had to go up the seventh floor to a factory. It was, it was kind of weird. Uh, oh, and I remember when I was there, because I had a, a lady interpreter, and the alarm went off. And before I could even think, she grabbed a hold of my uh, shoulder and she pulled me. And the whole building decanted onto the plaza um, outside the skyscraper in a minute. Uh, I, was, I was laughing at her and said, you know, back home where I come from, they'd be sending a, uh, uh, an email to their mates just to say the building's on fire. Uh, and then they would do it on Facebook and tell everybody, and then they'd pack their bags and move everything. And she said, that wasn't the fire alarm. That was the earthquake alarm. 
And I'll tell you what, if you're, if you're in Japan and it was Yokohama and, and, the, and the earthquake alarm goes off, you don't mess about, you don't funny about and say, oh, is that, the, is that a practice? Because the building could be collapsing. And it was amazing. I'll tell you what, those of you in fire, I, I tell you, I have never ever in my life seen a building empty um, as quickly and as orderly in my life. It just goes to prove what can be done. So I'm in a strapping machine in the seventh floor when we go back in again. And there's a V-belt guard underneath. I mean, this is only um, maybe 10 years ago. A V-belt guard underneath the table, a V-belt with no guard on it. And I said to the Japanese manager, I said, um, um, what, what about this guard? And he said, why do we need to guard it? It's under the table. And I, I gave an example. I said, well, the lady mechanic who's looking after these, she's got a boiler suit on. She might pull a hanky out, a coin falls out, rolls underneath, she's going to go under. He said, she won't do that. I said, why not? He said, I've told her not to. So, and I said, that's, that's not going to work. He said, ah, this is where you upset me, Blair. He said, I know you English, okay? <laughs> I know you English. So, and the heel stands up in the back of the neck. <laughs> I, I, I've been to England, he said. And here's a point for everybody. Um, what I've seen in England is that you cover up and protect all risk so that people no longer perceive risk in the workplace, probably top mechanical risk. Because they no longer perceive risk, when one day risk presents itself, they're not equipped to deal with it. Yeah. And I thought that was that was a, an interesting point. Now, it, it stuck with me nearly as much as being called English. No. <laughs> So that's excellent, Bill. I'm really enjoying these stories. This has been a great podcast tonight. Oh. I'm just going to move on a little bit and discuss where you see yourself progressing to in the future. And we joked a little bit about this before we started. Oh, well, I mean, <laughs> my, my idea at the moment is to stay out of a box as long as I can, um, but to never stop. I, I mean, my wife did say to me recently, she said, you know, you're past retirement now. Don't you think you ought to maybe just ease up? And I said, what will I do? Um, and, I, and I don't know because I, I, I'm one of these very fortunate people that my profession is a great part of my hobby as well. Um, and, and I really do enjoy it. Um, I have a very dear friend um, and he's not active anymore. And I, I, and I found that um, it, it almost takes away some of the spark of your life if you're not active and I've always uh, I've always loved the thrill of working and um, uh, 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 and developing particularly younger people um, and I think I would be a bit lost without it so I'm quite happy to carry on training but I never stop my wife despairs um, I've got several other projects on the way now um, using artificial intelligence to try and improve situations and give people automatic information and this kind of thing. Um, about that, Bill, that seems really interesting. I think the people watching the podcast would enjoy that. Well, you see, one of, one of the things we've got is that people never know how far they can work away from the welding hood, like we talked about before. 
Uh, and what I wanted was a big sign saying, your safe limit is this. And that's easy to say, but not easy to do technologically. So I met a young lad from uh, America, who's originally from Russia. Ivan's a lovely lad. He's an electromechanical um, expert. In fact, this wasn't posted, but he makes these little smoke machines. I don't know if this one's charged up or whether it'll work, but lovely little smoke machines. Look at that. And you, you can test equipment. And I said to him, Ivan, I've got some other projects for you because he's a young electromechanical boffin. I want to be able to do this. Can it be done? And he said, yeah, of course. I can do the maths. The maths is quite challenging. Um, and, and especially so, as you, oh, I won't bore you with the maths, but you have to work it backwards. And it's a power to the power to a power kind of thing. Um, and we've got it. And in fact, um, in the post the other day, I got the first prototype. So we're going to try and strap this thing on and it will tell people at any second how far the safe distance away is from the front of their extraction system. Wow. Because, uh, you know, a lot of these welding hoods, there's five of them, five of them all under one overhead ducting, one fan. And if only one of them switched on, opened up, it'll work better than if all five. So the distance is an arm. And if it's bunched up, the distance shortens. And if the arm's opened out, the distance extends. So that's one of the little projects I've got. Um, another one I'm running on is uh, an automatic detection device for recirculating filters. So we're going right back to my university days, um, where a lot of people now are using uh, recirculating filters. The, the, the great advantage of them is that there's a lower installation cost and especially no heat loss from the building. So if you think about it, if you've got a, a big, heavy industrial uh, extraction system, that's warm air you're throwing out all the time. And um, I think HSC have got some concerns that they can, they can see the benefit of recirculating filters um, because of the savings on energy and so on. But here's the, 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 the vulnerability of them is that if there's any integrity problem in that filter, you're simply going to recycle the contaminant back into the workplace and if it's silica something like that yeah and you can get devices that will do it uh, and a couple of firms make them and they're three and a half to five thousand pounds for the monitor mm -hmm. and those monitors that you can buy real-time dust monitors the uh, chinese have got one that retails for about 180 pound so i stripped it down so how does this thing work and I thought, if you could make something for £180, it becomes part and parcel of the original equipment. Yeah. And it would only be traffic lights. So it would say, whoa, we've got a problem here. There's something coming through. Because basically, these systems would normally have a very fine HEPA filter as the last filter. So nothing should be coming through. Nothing. Yeah. And basically, okay, the little device might have an error margin of plus or minus 20%. But who cares? It, it shouldn't be anything coming through. And if something comes through... So I've got Ivan working on that one as well. Uh, we never stop. We never stop. And then you're living a farm as well, Bill. So I knew you were going to say, what, what, what's, 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 your, what's your hobbies? I mean, um, this week, um, you don't know where these, you don't want to know where these hands have been, but we've been lambing. 
um, and uh, at the end of lambing, the, the female sheep are pretty fat and the lambs are pretty big. So it's like you need tire levers to get some of these uh, lambs out. So we've been doing that. And my son's decided that he's going to incubate chickens. We've already got a fair amount of chickens. So we have to go and build a hut to put them in because we've got extra chickens. So we've been doing things like that. And uh, I, I have lots of interests. I thought you were going to say, tell me some unusual qualifications you've got, Bill. And I would... <laughs> I was going to say, other than the normal things, I am a, a formal mole trapper. I have done the proper course for mole trapping. Um, I have just, re this is pure coincidence, I bought some for stocks and just um, last Thursday. So um, you need a ticket to buy that now. Um, I, I am a carcass inspector because of game dealership we're game dealers uh, and you have to have someone who's qualified to inspect carcasses yeah. um, so those are some of the more interesting things that i've done as you know from being here i'm also a, a shotgun instructor uh, yeah. there's a long story i'll get into that as well i'm one of the worst shots in the world but i can teach it maybe that's my maybe that's my epitaph yeah you know he couldn't really do anything, but he could teach it. And also, you're quite into flying as well, Bill. Do you want to? Tell yeah, me? I had a private pilot's license. I, I, it, it, as you know from an earlier part of this conversation, I wanted to be a pilot. Always had done, and um, so I decided I would do it privately because being colourblind prevents you commercially. Nobody will touch you if you're colourblind. Um, but there's no no bar on um, being able to do private flying. So um, in 1985, um, I did my private pilot's license um, and uh, thoroughly enjoyed it. Don't do it now. Uh, it's one of those things, got it off my chest, um, but uh, thoroughly enjoyed it. Yeah, I had twin engine rating and night rating, uh, all sorts of things. Um, and. Uh, yeah, and, and I do other things. I do a bit of fishing now and again as well, walking, um, keeping my wife company on the hills. She likes to do walking, and it's got along to kind of keep her company, you know. If we come back a little bit, Bill, just to sum up then, if we look at what guidance would you give to someone starting out in health and safety today, given that you've had such a long and spectacular career in the industry, moving through different areas of the industry as well, at different times, what advice would you give to someone starting out? I mean, it's what I would, uh, the advice I'd give to my own children, as I, I may have mentioned to you earlier, I would tell them to go and be a lawyer and accountant rather than health and safety, but that's uh, that's maybe not, not actually true. Um, health and safety, I do think, um, is a fantastic career. It's very broad. It's a huge church, and, and there are many corners that some, that is maybe not quite so, popular as others. It, my, my own personality would always be to advise people to find um, a path not well trodden by others and become a master at it. Uh, and then uh, you will find you'll end up like me, a little bit mad. Um, but people then think that, well, I, I hope they think that Bill knows a fair bit about um, his subject. He couldn't do it, but he can tell others about it. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I, I would think an area that's um, 
special to you, you've got to have the you've got to have the broad ground, grounding in health and safety. And certainly, I was very fortunate to get that in HSC, but it did allow me then to specialise as well. And uh, yeah, that's what I would recommend. That's great advice, Bill. And just to sum up then, if anybody wants to get in touch with you or come and do a course with Oxalate or get some advice or consultancy work done by yourself, how would they get in touch with you? They just, they just go on our website. It's ever so easy to remember. It's, it's, it's oxalate.com. And if anybody wants to contact me for advice or um, what not to do and uh, uh, where not to go, uh, uh, as, as much as the things that are good and the opportunities that are there and the niche areas or, or for advice and guidance to come on training courses, my email is very, very simple. It's bill, me, at oxalate.com. That's jingle, didn't it? Uh, and I'll put the, the links in the the comments on the podcast as well so that anybody that wants to get in touch with you can bump onto the website and get you from there. Of course, the other thing we haven't talked about is Marco Pierre White, have we? I hope he's going to watch this too. Me and my mate Marco, um, he, he came on the farm uh, and we, we did a television program together and um, quite a character. Um, so I don't know why we said that really. Marco, you're like, oh. <laughs> well, Marco, if you're out there and you're watching, Bill's asking for you. <laughs> how are you keeping my old mate? I still make the bacon the way that you taught me how to do it in the microwave. Can you believe that? <laughs> Top chef does his bacon in the microwave. Brilliant. 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 Thank you so much for coming on the show. It's a pleasure. Absolutely brilliant. The stories have been fantastic and I hope to see you soon. Um, we'll get a catch up the next time I'm passing. I'll stop in and see you. All right, you take care now. Cheers, Bill. Cheers now. This podcast is sponsored by Inside Out Group, the specialists in high-risk and challenging filming and time-lapse, covering health and safety videos for rail, construction and infrastructure projects nationwide.